I'll ask you to take your Bibles this morning with me and turn to our study of the book of Romans. We are really just beginning this great book. We have spent the first few weeks of this study thinking about and really pondering the reality of the content of the gospel. The content of the gospel. And it needs to be said at the outset that the portion of Scripture that we will come to this morning is the very key that unlocks the good news of God for all of mankind. This is really simply to say that we will never come to grips with an understanding of the importance of the gospel of God. We will never be personally as Christians motivated as we should be motivated as Paul has exhorted us to be motivated in the proclamation of the gospel of God until the truths of this very portion of Scripture lay with their full weight upon our hearts and our understanding. This is, I believe, the place at which all men must begin before they will embrace the true and living God. This is the the place at which all men must face. And although the verses we have before us are part of an even larger section that begins from chapter 1, verse 18, and goes down through chapter 3 and verse 20. In other words, Paul does not finish his thought on this in any kind of real way until you get to verse 20 of chapter 3. I believe the import of these verses have an impact through all of that. I just want to begin to say and have us think about this reality. We, we live in a country that has a rule of law that all of us are familiar with when we think about our life here in the United States. It is the rule that you are innocent until you are proven guilty. That is a rule of law. Whether that is part of public opinion when things happen is neither here nor there. The rule of law is the same. We are, in any kind of context, innocent until proven guilty. However... In the heavenly kingdom, which is in fact the only kingdom that really matters, it is the eternal kingdom that will last forever. In that kingdom, just the opposite is true. All men are guilty until they are made innocent by God. There is no innocence until proven guilty in the economy of the eternal kingdom. It is a principle of law that all men are guilty until they are made innocent by God who is the judge and the lawmaker. This is what we are dealing with this morning. This is the ugly truth. We are uncovering the ugly truth concerning every part of humanity. And so as we do in our normal time together, I want to start by reading this text for us, beginning in verse 18 and reading all the way down through the end of chapter 1, verse 32. And just let your mind and your heart resonate with 
what God is saying. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, Greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It is indeed sad to find in our day and age so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. So many within evangelicalism that are so embarrassed in some way because God has indeed revealed His wrath that they shy away from it. And while some would not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish upon His divine character. They are far from regarding it with any kind of delight, any kind of worshipful attitude at all. In fact, 
many would rather not think of it at all. Even more than that, it seems in our day that if someone teaches about the wrath of God in any kind of way, in evangelicalism it seems today, they will speak of it in some kind of secret resentment within their own hearts. You can survey the landscape of what you hear upon evangelical preaching and teaching in our day, and you will be rare to find anyone preach on the wrath of God. Oh, you will have a myriad of messages and a myriad of of potential and so-called sermons and teachings and classes and books and all kinds of things on the love of God, but you will dare find one speaking on the wrath of God. Even with those who are more sober in their judgment about God's wrath, even then only a few seem to imagine that there is a severity about divine wrath. Sadly, even, most just try to banish it from their thinking because it doesn't just seem consistent with God's character. When you think about God's wrath in that way, you have to ask yourself the question, what does the Scriptures say? What does the Scriptures say? You see, this is the true litmus test for God's wrath. This is the the place where we make our decision as to whether it's worthy of something to be thought about and talked about. It is not in the opinions of men and the minds of men and the philosophies of men. It is in whether the Scriptures speak to it or not. The test as to whether you and I speak about it is not our own comfortability with the reality and the character of the wrath of God or our lack of comfortability with it. The test isn't whether it will tickle the ears of you and I or the ears of somebody else and make them feel good about who God is. The test is not that. The real test is what does God say about His wrath? How does God describe Himself? And when we look at the Scriptures, we find that God has not chosen in any kind of way to hide His wrath. It is not an attribute that He is ashamed of in any way. In fact, in the Old Testament it says this, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 39 to 41, this is God speaking to Israel about who He is, describing Himself to the people of God that He has chosen. And this is what He says, See now that I Myself am He. There is no God besides Me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of My hand. I lift My hand to heaven and declare... As surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. Unquote. I always love it when God says, As surely as I live forever. As if there's a question in the mind of men that God will, in fact, and does live forever. 
So the fact of the matter is, God is saying, as long as I am living, this declaration is true. If we know God at all, it is true forever. Because God is forever, and God describes Himself in those verses with terms of vengeance. God describes Himself as one meeting out judgment upon those who reject Him. Upon those who want nothing to do with Him. Upon those who feign some kind of relationship with Him. You might take some time on your own study at some point and just simply look in a good Bible concordance. If you don't know what a concordance is, it's just a simple tool put together by biblical scholars that, that helps you trace the place in every verse and every place in the Scriptures where certain things and certain words are used. And when you go to a good concordance, you will discover that there are more references in Scripture to the anger and the fury and the wrath of God than there are references to God's love and His tenderness. There is more reference to the vengeance of God than to His care and concern for others. And so when we open Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul, having completed his introduction to us concerning the gospel, that it is God's gospel, and we have no right to adjust it whatsoever, that God is the origin of the gospel and that the object of the gospel is Jesus Christ, and the outcome of that is a changed life completely and fully as it is embraced in Jesus Christ alone. And once Paul shows us his motivation for why he continues to preach the gospel, continually proclaiming it to all of mankind. And that, by way of what he said, motivates us to do the same. He now begins to deal with the weight of the doctrinal matters that lie within the gospel. It's as if we are opening up the box and we are reading now what is really the content of the gospel. The content of the good news of God to all of mankind. And the closing words of verse 17 ought to be ringing in our ears. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. Righteous. Live by faith. Now we know that God's character cannot change. We know that if God was to change in His character in one little iota, we would have no hope because we have no stability to have faith in a God that we do not know. God cannot change. He is altogether righteous. Therefore, His righteousness cannot change in one bit. God cannot act in such a way that would go against or, or outside of who He is by His very character. And He is perfectly righteous. Therefore, for all of us to have any hope as mankind altogether, it must be on the principle of faith. The righteous shall live by faith. 
and it must be in strict accordance with the very character of God, and God is fully and perfectly holy and fully and perfectly righteous altogether. Therefore, we have this stunning and sweeping statement following on the heels of verse 17, beginning in verse 18, concerning the action of God toward all of humanity. Here is God living according to His very character and His very nature. We uncover and open the box of the content of the Gospel and it begins with these shocking words. For the wrath of God is revealed. It's quite amazing to me in our modern day of ever-increasing wisdom that in evangelicalism we believe that if we are going to introduce someone to this God whom we proclaim to know, then we need to begin with His love and leave out His wrath. That we need to adjust the Gospel and just get people to to like God first, to really embrace the, the loving things of God first, because after all, God is love and we seem to leave out wrath. But as we have already seen and as we have already heard, this is not the thinking of God. This is the reason this is not the thinking of Paul. This is the reason that Paul begins there in in this book of Romans as he's writing to the saints. We have to know the gospel. And so Paul begins the same place that God begins. Why? Because fear of eternal condemnation is, in fact, the first issue that needs to be preached. It is the issue that is on the mind of the Apostle Paul right out of the gate. Paul and God, God through Paul, has determined that we understand that reality. That we understand the reality that God's wrath is revealed. It's continual. We are under the hand of God's wrath. This is where the gospel begins. Why is it that we oftentimes want to begin our gospel presentations with that beloved verse from John chapter 3 and verse 16? For God so loved the world. Paul did not begin there. Why? Because a person cannot fully appreciate the wonder and the majesty of God in His love through the death of Jesus Christ as He expresses it to those whom He was going to save until they know something about the wrath that He has against them for the violation of His perfect law. None of us here who know Jesus Christ by faith can appreciate in its fullest sense the full weight and mercy and forgiveness of God that we have through Jesus Christ by faith unless we have come to an understanding of the full weight of the guilt we have before a holy God. And so Paul here begins in verse 18 in a general sense with the reality the reality that wrath is revealed. 
As we walk through this passage over the next several weeks, we're going to see the reasons why this wrath is being revealed by God. We're going to see why God is so angry. Why God is so angry. The wrath of God being revealed continually is the reality. This is not an illusion. This is not some ethereal concept. This is not something for the religious circles. This is reality. This is real life. And it is imperative that we begin the gospel right there. It is imperative that you and I, when we speak to others, that we we come across to them in some kind of way to help them understand the fact that they are indeed under the wrath of God. But what is wrath? What is wrath? There's a whole host of things that might even come into our minds when we think about the wrath. But, but what is the wrath of God? You hear all kinds of things on TV and, and from other preachers about why things happen in our world. What, what is the wrath of God? In the original language, the word is orge. It's, a, it's an, a, one of two words, really, that deal with wrath in the, in the New Testament. Orge is one of them. The other one is thumos. Thumos is, is simply the word where you and I get our modern-day word thermometer. Thermometer is something that measures the increase of heat, temperature. And, and so thumos is like that. Thumos is a boiling kind of wrath. It, it, it's a wrath that begins at a, at, at a temperature and then begins to increase in temperature until there's a point where it blows over. It explodes over time. It's the kind of anger that bursts out, if you will. Explodes into rage. It's that kind of sinful response that you might even be sadly aware of in your own self when, when someone does something against you, when that person driving on the road that you're Driving on simply pulls out in front of you and you have this burst of anger that comes out. That's a, a thumos kind of anger. And yet when it's from us, it's a sinful thing. Orge is not like that. Orge is less sudden in its outburst. But it's longer in its duration. Orge is a settled kind of anger. Settled rage. I was trying to think of how to illustrate that settled rage, and in my limited understanding of life, all I could think about was those sterno containers that we put underneath the food. We put that chemical in a can, and you light it, and it burns very hot, but it burns for a long time. That's orge heat. That's orge wrath. Extremely hot, and yet burns slow and long. It's not the flashpot kind of uncontrolled anger. This, this is the kind that goes on. This is the wrath of God, orge, that Paul is speaking of here. 
And like all of his other attributes, it is perfect in its exercise. Perfect in its demonstration. And part of the difficulty with us is we, we try to attribute or we, we have the tendency to attribute our understanding of human anger on God because that's what we understand. But because God is perfect, because God is righteous, because God is holy, His orge anger and even His thumos anger, which He does have, is never like ours. It is never sinful. In fact, our wrath is always somehow compromised by sin. But God cannot sin. God hates sin, the Bible tells us. I was reading Thomas Watson recently who wrote about God's hatred of sin and I just thought this was a good portion from him to read to you. It says this, quote, Is God so infinitely holy? Then see how unlike to God sin is. Sin is an unclean thing. It's called an abomination. God has no mixture of evil in Him. Sin has no mixture of good. It is the spirit and quintessence of evil. It turns good into evil. It has deflowered the virgin soul, made it red with guilt and black with filth. It is called the accursed thing. No wonder, therefore, that God hates sin. Unquote. God is so opposite of anything that has to do with anything unrighteous, ungodly, impure, that God hates sin. And because God hates sin, because God, because of His character, because He must hate sin, He is in, therefore, a state of continual wrath. Why? Because sin is continual. Paul says the reality is just that. The wrath of God is revealed. It's not a one-time moment. That's not a single event. That is a continual reality. That means that it has been and continues to be uncovered every day, every moment. God's wrath is being and is revealed all over the place. That is the state of the orge of God. I wonder if that surprises us. Think of our God that way. Does that surprise us? It shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise us. Because from the fall of Adam, God's wrath has been continually revealed throughout the ages and it continues to be revealed in our days. You say, well, in what ways? We know God's wrath is this seething, slow-burning, continuous anger of God against sinfulness, then in what ways does it manifest itself? Well, I'll just give you a few. First, first it manifests itself by divine intervention. Divine intervention. Some in theological circles have called this kind of thing cataclysmic wrath, but I, I prefer to just call it divine intervention. For example, Noah the days of Noah and his wife and their sons and their sons' wives, they were saved from the divine wrath of God when He poured out His anger upon the earth during the flood. That was the divine intervention of God upon the earth through the means 
of Him unleashing the flood of water so that all of mankind would face the wrath. All of those who rejected Him, all of those who rejected the preaching of Moses for hundred plus years as he built the ark and the testimony of God just through Moses alone, let alone all that God had created and God poured out His wrath upon them. That was divine intervention. God rained down fire from heaven upon the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah during the days of Abraham. Divine intervention. God intervened from heaven upon the Egyptians as He was calling His own people away from the captivity of Pharaoh and those who had them in captivity. They defied His commands and God intervened with wrath. God even intervened upon the Israelites as they wandered through the desert for many, many, many generations as they refused to trust Him through their travels from Egypt to the Promised Land. God intervened with divine wrath over and over and over again. You even see the divine intervention of God in Jesus Christ in the New Testament in John chapter 2 when He cast the money changers out of the temple out of a divine zeal for the house of His Father. This was righteous wrath. And so we see the wrath of God, the orge of God in divine intervention as God intervenes upon society. God personally intervenes from heaven. But there's a second way the wrath of God is revealed. And it's what I call the wrath of natural consequence. The wrath of natural consequence. You say, well, what is that? Well, when God created the world, He built into His creation certain natural laws that govern how His creation operates. God is sustaining all of those by the word of His power. If God chose to not sustain the world, it would immediately dissolve. And yet God has built into within that the the operations of His natural laws. And if those laws are violated, God does not superintend them. Those laws take their effect. And so when they're violated, there is a certain natural wrath that has to be dealt with. To violate God's natural laws is to, in effect, ignore and devalue the lawgiver. To assume that the natural laws won't affect you is to say, well, God is not God. God did not create these. It is to devalue Him as who He is. It is to say that He is simply worthless. And so, for instance, if you someday got into your car and went driving over to a cliff and you decided to drive off that cliff just to see what would happen, God's natural law of gravity would take effect. You would fall to the bottom of that cliff and you would face the natural consequence upon your humanity. And just as the physical laws that God designed would take effect upon your life, so too it is when we deviate from the moral law of God. When humanity 
deviates from the moral law which God has put in place and which God has created according to how humanity ought to operate in both gender and and how we think about life and how we think about the, the sanctity of life in all those kinds of ways. When we violate the moral law of God, when we deviate from it in any kind of way, God's judgment upon that deviation must take effect. Or... God is no longer righteous. It has to happen. In other words, divine judgment is built in. And it must take place. One British writer, A. Froud, wrote this concerning divine judgment. Quote, One lesson and only one history may be said to repeat with distinctness that the world is built somehow on moral foundations. That, in the long run, it is well with the good and in the long run, it is ill with the wicked. Unquote. He is simply saying that all men are subject to God's wrath. And so the question is, why? Why? The reality is that God's wrath is continuously revealed. But why? Why? And what? at what is God so continually angry? Why is God so angry? Well, Paul gives us the reason in a general sense in the rest of verse 18. We know the reality. Wrath is revealed. And in a general sense, Paul gives us the overarching reason in verse 18. And then he begins in verses 19 through 32 to, to really all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, to tighten that noose, to cinch it down upon the neck of every individual in humanity. And he gets more specific about why God is so angry. Notice what he says. Verse 18, we, we have to embrace this. We have to come to, to terms with this. For the wrath of God is revealed, notice, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The reality is that God is continually angry and the general reason is because of the ungodliness and of righteousness of men. It is not because God seemingly is just arbitrary and decides to be angry one day and wakes up and says, I'm in a bad mood, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. No, God is angry and continually angry simply because those within His creation that are to worship Him refuse to worship Him. They are ungodly and unrighteous. And notice the scope of God's anger and the scope of His wrath against humanity covers all of men. Do you see that? It is revealed from heaven against 
all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It isn't as if, oh, there's some over here that are unrighteous and some over here that are ungodly and God's wrath is upon that group. But over here is this moral group, this group that, that seems to be a little better than those because they don't do the same things as those. So God's wrath is not revealed against them. No, that's not the context. That's not the grammar use that Paul has here. The scope of the wrath of God is over all men. Because all men are ungodly. Because all men are unrighteous. That means we're all included. That means none of us can escape upon our own merits. God's wrath is upon all of us. It is our condition from birth. We are all guilty. We are not innocent. Someone might well say, well, wait a minute. I'm a good person. Wait a minute. How can you say that of me? You speak to your friends and your neighbors and some of your children, maybe some sitting here. Wait a minute. I'm a pretty good person. After all, I give to charitable organizations. I certainly don't shoot up crowds that are enjoying a nice concert. I don't murder people on a whim. I don't do wicked things and abuse children. I don't steal. I mean, after all, I'm not a bad guy. I'm a lot better than that. Let's just stipulate for the court of God's grace that you are, in fact, probably, by way of your activity, better than some and maybe even better than most. Because some people do appear by activity to be better than others. But the fact is that nobody is born embracing or doing the moral law of God. No one. All are ungodly and unrighteous. Someone what? once gave me an illustration about this and how we are all falling short of that reality, how we all have come to that way. And they said, I'll explain it to you this way. You take all of humanity and you line them up on the Grand Canyon, some being Olympic athletes, Olympic jumpers, Olympic runners. You, you line us all up. We're all different phases. We're all different in our abilities. And you say to everyone, okay, everybody jump to the other side of the Grand Canyon. And just by the grace, we'll give you a running start. Go ahead, jump. Some of us would get maybe two feet off the edge and begin to plunge down. Maybe someone would get four. Maybe even an Olympic athlete might get 26 or 30 feet. And then they would plunge to the bottom. Why? Because none of us have the ability to reach the other side. We are all ungodly and unrighteous. Ungodliness is a reference to just simply a lack of reverence for God. All men are born with the nature to be unreverent to God. Those who are not devoted to the one true God. Those who who want nothing to do with the God of Scripture. Those who are not reverent to Him. That's ungodliness. 
Not only you don't want anything to do with him, you don't want to live as he says. You're worshiping a God of your own making, worshiping a God of your own design, worshiping a God by which you have decided you are the God. You get to choose what is right. You get to choose what is morally right. You get to choose what is, therefore, the life you will live, the moral way in which you'll carry yourself. And you've chosen to determine that you are better than the person sitting next to you or the person in your workplace or the person in your own home or Whatever it is, you've chosen. You are God. And unrighteousness, then, is the inevitable result of ungodliness. Because you're ungodly, you live unrighteously. When man has no reverence for God, he will have no love for God or love for the law of God. And therefore, because he has an impiety toward God Himself. He lashes out with injustice toward His fellow man. The reason we see trouble between one another has nothing to do with the fact that one person is better than the other or that one violates a law and someone else doesn't. The reason we lash out against each other is simply because we're ungodly and unrighteous. The reason we fight against one another is because we have a wrong relationship with the one true God. You young people sitting here who live in homes where your parents are are godly people and they want you to know God and you say, I don't like my parents anymore. I don't like the fact that they make rules I have to listen to. The problem is with them. Guess what? God says, no, no. The problem isn't with your parents. Regardless of the rules they make, the problem is with your heart, with me. The reason you don't want to listen to your parents, the reason you don't want to do what they ask you to do is because you don't love God. If you loved God, you would humble yourself and trust God and do what they ask. James chapter 4 says the reason we have fights and quarrels among us has nothing to do with the fact that someone else treated us badly. Surely enough, that happens at infinitum and we treat others as poorly as they might treat us. The reason we have fights and quarrels among one another is because we have desires that we're not getting and because we don't get them, we fight and we murder. That's why. That is a God relationship problem. Not somebody sinned against me problem. It's because of ungodliness. It's because of unrighteousness. And why is it that we are ungodly and unrighteous? Why is it that God's wrath is revealed continually against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men? Why? Because all men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, that's the natural outworking of ungodliness producing unrighteousness. It is to push God away. That's what suppress means. We suppress the truth. How can God hold all humanity responsible for violating Him? How can God in His rightness say, My wrath is revealed against you in every kind of way because all men are suppressing the truth. They, they didn't 
They say, well, I didn't know. Yes, you do know. If you didn't know, then why are you pushing it away? Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, because all men suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. That's the natural outlook. That's the condition of men. The reason for God's wrath is that men have the truth about God and all men push it away because they are unrighteous. This is very helpful for us when we share the gospel, is it not? This is very helpful for us when we talk to someone who who refuses the truth. We go already understanding they're rejecting the truth. We don't have to convince them they know God. God has already done that. The fact of the matter is they're just pushing that away in untruth. Pushing it away as if it doesn't exist. The word suppress means simply that, to hold it down, to to push it aside, to, to really say, I don't want anything to do with that. Mankind knows the truth. They know the truth of God, but they willfully choose by their own unrighteousness and ungodliness to hold it down and to not acknowledge it because they are unrighteous. It's not in doing that they become unrighteous. No, they do that because they're unrighteous. You see, I don't have to prove to someone they're a sinner. They're proof enough. Because they reject God. Reject God. That enough is proof alone. Constantly suppressing the truth of God in their own willful sin. Sin so engulfs the heart of man so strongly that it assaults the truth of God. That's what it does. This is the reason, part of the reason you and I have no ability to save ourselves. We cannot overcome the assault of sin. We can do nothing to cure ourselves. God has given to all men a knowledge of Him and they push it away. Push it away. Their attempts are futile. Because God has given all men that understanding, their attempts are futile. And because their attempts to push it away are futile, they live with the guilt. The constant pressure of the knowledge of God upon their conscience weighing heavy upon them and they attempt to justify themselves. Just to salve a guilty conscience. The Bible tells us the fool says in his heart there is no God. To not embrace the one living true God is simply to say there is no God. Regardless of the God you make with your mind and in your own heart, you can say, well, I believe in a God. Well, that's fine. But if it isn't the God of the Bible, then it's a fool. You're a fool because you're saying there is no God because your God is worthless. And sinful men must say 
there is no God. Why? Because if they say there is a God, then they also must understand and know that they are accountable to that one true God. So in an attempt to try to deal with their own guilt, man creates gods that will tolerate his own sin. I remember when I was a teenager professing to know Jesus Christ, yet I was unsaved. I was a professing unbeliever. I tried to convince my father one time that it was the will of God that I do this thing that was sinful. I can remember to this day sitting in an Arby's restaurant across the table from my father in my later teen years trying to convince him that this was God's will for my life, and he just laughed. He said, you don't have a clue what the will of God is. And, of course, in my foolishness, I thought at the time he was clueless. But I was the fool. I was the fool who said there was no God. Really? Why? Because my heart was darkened. The Apostle John tells us in John 3, man loves darkness rather than light. Why? Why? Why does man love to corral around in the secrecy of his own sinfulness and in the darkness, in the physical darkness of night and these kinds of things, doing things where other people can't see? Why does he like to do that? Because his deeds are evil. Because his deeds are evil. You see, why do, why do some of us who, who are sinning and, and sinning, especially in the electronic age, not want anybody else to see what we're doing? Because our sins are ever before us and our deeds are evil. We want to keep them in the dark. We think that by them, if nobody knows, then we can keep up the charade. But God knows. And God's wrath is upon you. Man suppresses the truth because he loves his sin. Yet John 3 says God's wrath abides on him. So Paul begins by simply saying, you're all guilty? I find it amazing he's writing to saints. You want to know the content of the gospel? Here it is. Everybody without Christ is guilty. You're guilty before God. You're not innocent until proven guilty. You are guilty before God, even though you might deny that reality. How do we know that all men know about God? How do we know that? Because God has made Himself universally known. And we're going to get to that next time. <laughs> Beginning in verse 19. That which is known about God is evident. Where? Within them. Within them. Paul just continues to uncover the ugly truth. The wrath of God, folks, is continually on a state of being upon all of those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, 
Part of the reason is because you suppress the truth. Push it away. Say, I don't want it. I don't need it. I'm good enough without it. You suppress the truth in your own unrighteousness. Don't suppress the truth. Don't do that. Come to Christ. Believe on Christ. The bad news is that eternal death is awaiting you if you will not believe. And those who will not believe will not escape. There is no way out. The only escape hatch is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I trust we've said enough this morning that our time together would be an honor to You. I know there are those here who do not know You. Their ears have heard. The Gospel has been poured out to them in buckets. And yet they refuse. Lord, we plead with You on behalf of them that You would crush them gently. That You would cause them to see their sin, their ungodliness, their unrighteousness. Reality in which they push the truth away that they know. They know it's right. They cannot escape the conscience which You have given them. They can try to silence it, but they cannot escape it. So we pray that You would Convict their heart that their unrighteousness would be so clear to them that it would frighten them to run to You and beg for mercy. Lord, maybe there's those here even who have said they believe, but their life shows no evidence of that. They've played the game of Christianity. They've played the game of church life, but no real evidence that they know You. Lord, help them to examine themselves to see if they be in the faith. Lord, and if Your wrath frightens them with a shaking fear that they tremble, then we can praise You for that if it draws them to You. Cause all of us to think of these things and to be bold in our sharing of the Gospel truth to let others know that they have no hope. So give us the spirit of grace and patience, boldness to preach the gospel, that your name would be honored in not only the preaching of the gospel, but in the saving of souls that you save through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.